If you're in business, you probably have a website, but can your site handle your growth? How many visitors before your site slows down or crashes? What about storage and data security? From web hosting to virtual servers, Pair Networks provides the online infrastructure you need to start, grow, and flourish. When it comes to security and updates, don't worry, we've got you covered. Our 24-7 U.S.-based customer support is the best in the industry. No frustrating chatbots are sitting on hold for hours. Check out Pair.com today to learn more. That's P-A-I-R.com. After a hiatus due to new baby in the household, summertime Friday Q&A calls are back. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets, and when I don't have new babies that disrupt my schedule, whenever possible, we try to do Friday Q&A shows. You call in, ask a question, make a comment, and we chat together about your situation, try to come up with some useful, helpful financial advice. would like to call in and join on a call in the future these calls are generally the best way for you to get uh well for you to get a question answered or to talk directly with me about any subject uh, or topic that you would like Uh, i open these calls to the patrons of the show uh, people who sign up and voluntarily say hey joshua i appreciate the work that you're doing want to send you a little bit of money to say thank you uh so i open these up uh, to patrons uh Patrons only. You can sign up to be a patron at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. However, the reality is many people who are patrons just do it to send a little bit of money my way and thanks for the work that I already do. And often very few uh, call into the calls. At the moment, I've got one caller on the line. So today's show uh, will be as short or as long as this particular caller would like to make it. (laughs) So I would encourage you, if you'd like to get on a call with me in the future, uh, come on by at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron. Uh, Sign up to become a patron of this show, and that's where you will receive the notifications uh, about these calls. So you get the call-in number. I record them in advance of them being released on the feed, so obviously uh, this is not a live call, but you'll get the call-in number and the time at which I'm going to be recording, and then that allows you to call in at that time for us to chat. So let's go directly to Jonathan. Jonathan, it's you and me, and you've got me for as long as you want, so kick it off by introducing yourself, and let's see what questions you have that I can help you with today, please. Joshua, how's it going? Very well, sir. Um, I've just uh, moved down to Florida after about uh, 20 plus years working as a New York City medical examiner, and I'm in the process of rolling over my retirement accounts into uh, Vanguard index funds. And if you roll over more than $50,000 worth uh, into Vanguard funds, uh, they assign you a personal uh, advisor, a personal financial advisor. And this uh, personal advisor gone over my uh, statistics and has recommended a certain asset allocation, um, which I'd like to discuss with you, but um, also that he suggested that I uh, incorporate in some way. He said he wasn't familiar with how incorporation works in Florida, but uh, there were some financial advantages to that. And also, in addition to doing um, forensic pathology, I do some consulting work. And he said that if I were to incorporate, that would provide me with some um, security, uh, some uh, immunity in terms of liability. Mm-hmm. I just wondered what you thought about that. 
It's an interesting question, and there are a lot of there's a lot of information, there's a lot of advice that's given on the topic that's good, and there's a lot that's not uh, very good. What I have experienced in working in this area is many people recommend incorporation because it seems like a safe thing to do. Uh, it's kind of like I recommend that you get insurance because it's a safe thing to do, and especially professional advisors who are going to be judged based upon the content of their advice, we, we, we professional advisors have a tendency to, to always say, you know, cover yourself, cover yourself. So on a, the answer to the question depends on who you're talking to and depends on the specifics of the situation. Uh, and you'll often find somebody that is um, – well, it depends on who you're talking to and the specifics of the situation. So let's talk about the advantages of uh, incorporation and let's break it down for the purpose of our context to just simply talk about using a business entity. Technically, incorporation would usually refer to the establishment of a corporation, either a C-corp or an S-corporation, traditional business corporation or small business corporation. Uh, In what we're talking about here, you mentioned an LLC. So an LLC is a slightly different animal, uh, but it's basically, should I establish a business entity? That's the fundamental question. Whether or not you should establish a business entity is going to be driven by the, the factors of your of your circumstances. And there are a couple of different uh, reasons. The first two big reasons are liability exposure and taxation. And these are different decisions. Let's start with liability exposure. The idea behind using a corporate entity to run your business for the, from the perspective of liability exposure is to separate your personal finances from your business finances. If you uh, have a lawn maintenance uh, business and you have five trucks on the road with uh, you know two workers in each truck and one of your workers um, – you know, one of the guys runs over somebody's leg with a lawnmower, uh, chopping off their foot, and the other guy is so surprised by that that he crashes the truck while he's driving by into the person's house. Now you've got a lawsuit on your hands for the damage of property to the house and the damage of property to the foot <laughs> and all of the, the associated lawsuit along with that. Well, you can expect to get a lawsuit, and if they find that you were your workers were liable and negligent negligent in their action, you, you're probably going to lose the lawsuit and they're going to take out a judgment against you. Well, if they win a million-dollar judgment, the idea behind using a corporation is to disconnect your company from your person and say, well, they can sue my company, but they can't sue me personally. That's the fundamental aspect of liability protection. The reason that's so important is not all actions and not all companies are the type of things where somebody's going to actually face a liability exposure uh, uh, in their company. If you have employees and you have trucks and equipment, et cetera, on the road, then yes, without question, you need and should value that liability protection of the corporate entity. But there are professions in which there's not so much corporate liability as personal liability. I come from the world of financial advice. Uh, when I was a professional financial advisor, I was not uh, – If my most likely – my biggest liability, my biggest risk exposure was in the context of, uh, of my giving bad advice. If I gave fraudulent advice or I steered somebody in the wrong direction, then I would be – I could 
be held potentially liable for that bad advice, especially if there was harm and especially if I had uh, committed some sort of criminal act as well. I could be held liable for that. But it wouldn't matter whether or not uh, – it wouldn't matter whether or not that action occurred shielded by an entity, Joshua Sheets Financial Advice you know, corp- Incorporated, or whether it was just Joshua Sheets because that would be an act of professional liability. This is the same thing that physicians face, which is the world that you're in. Uh, you would – if a, a physician who uh, has a – makes a mistake or an error that winds up causing somebody a uh, – a medical problem is not their corporation is not going to be sued. They're going to be sued personally for an act of personal liability. So that's why a physician will will need to carry medical malpractice insurance, or that's why an insurance agent will carry errors and omissions insurance. And that insurance protects me as an individual. And as an insurance agent or a financial advisor, it doesn't really matter from the perspective of liability. If I had if I had no employees and no office, et cetera, if I had the corporate entity, it would just simply be my personal liability. So you got to ask yourself the question from a liability perspective, do I face the risk of li- – do I face liability exposure that goes beyond the my personal actions? Uh, Generally, this is going to be – you're going to have greater exposure if you have employees, if you have equipment, if you have uh, employees, equipment, locations, things like that that could expose you to more contact with the general public. Then you're going to have a greater liability exposure there. If you're just running a small consultancy, uh, a small individual practice, you don't have – you're not working with the public. You don't have public-facing property, et cetera, then perhaps your liability exposure is – minimized. And it may not be the big risk that it's portrayed to be. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't go ahead and set up an LLC to do business in. Uh, LLC is cheap and easy to use, minimal formality. So chances are it's probably a good solution regardless. But in terms of the strict answer to your question as far as liability, it depends on the nature of the company. Now, we'll go to taxation in a moment, but let me pause. Does that make sense to you? Do you have any Further clarification that was, needed? That was really impressively articulate. Okay. Now, I, I think I understand it. Well, what, what is umbrella insurance? I mean, what, what I do is, is, is most frequently lawyers come to me with, with wrongful deaths where there's an issue, and I give my opinion to, to the nature of the death, as to the cause of the death and the manner of the death, and they will use that opinion in terms of presenting the case in court. Um, so I don't know what sort of liability that in, in, incurs. It's my opinion, but I'm not actively involved in treating people. I'm not going to blind someone or cut off their the wrong foot or something like that. Yeah. So, what would umbrella insurance be something I should consider? That's a, a different uh, umbrella liability insurance is different than what we're talking about here. The answer to should you consider it? Yes, I was taught my CFP um, <laughs> instructor when I was going through the Certified Financial Planner curriculum. Uh, he gave us one simple rule: he said, "If you ever read on the Certified Financial Planning curriculum a question wherein the answer is umbrella liability insurance, you can just skip everything else, you know, select that and move on, uh, because um, the an umbrella liability policy that you purchase from your insurance agent that covers you it covers you from a, a broad range of 
risks related to the use of your car, the use of your home, uh, your personal actions, some aspects of lawsuit, et cetera. And it's very inexpensive to have a high amount of coverage. So you should always consider and research an umbrella liability policy. Uh, but that's not connected to an LLC. So to answer the LLC question, what you just described sounds like you have minimal risk, minimal risk, especially related to your business activities. You're much more operating as an individual, not so much there as a company with lots of employees. So I wouldn't, if I woke up in your shoes, I wouldn't freak out about my liability exposure in a context like that. You're just working as a personal consultant, sharing your opinion in many ways, getting paid uh, a consultancy fee, serving as an expert witness, et cetera, minimal risk. Now let's talk about taxation and, and, and explain that because often these two things get confused and people... Uh, talk and say, well, you can save money by setting up a, uh, an entity. You set up a business entity. Did, is, did the advisor also talk to you about taxation? Yes. I'm just blanking on what it was that he said about the taxation because when he raised the issue of liability, of course, one of the things doctors hate is being uh, sued. So that was one of the first things that uh, it's kind of set off uh, alarm bells in my head when he mentioned it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he said there was a taxation advantage too. Okay. So so to explain the taxation advantage, it's a little misleading to say that the LLC framework has a taxation advantage because when you establish an LLC, you actually get to choose how you're taxed. You file a form with the IRS and you can choose to be taxed as an individual, just a person. You can be choose to be taxed as a traditional corporation or as what's called a pass-through corporation. So an individual can, who has an LLC can choose to be taxed in the same way that they would be if they were a sole proprietor or a C corporation or an S corporation. And an LLC has to actually make that election uh, and choose the taxation model. So let's talk about the different taxation models. The simplest way to do business is just to work as what's called formally a sole proprietorship. And that means that you go and you do some sort of work and you get paid for it. And any individual, you, me, my son, um, uh, my neighbor, any of us can really have an unlimited number of businesses. And from a taxation perspective in dealing with the U.S. government, all we need to do is track and record the amount of compensation that we receive from the business, whether that compensation is measured in terms of uh, sales or payment as a contractor or a barter, what's the value of the barter uh, 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 instrument that was used to give us whatever it was. We just simply track the total income, and then we track any expenses that are related to that business, and we fill out in the U.S. tax system, we fill out what's called for federal purposes a Schedule C. And a Schedule C is just simply a profit or loss from business statement. And you fill out a Schedule C for each individual business that you may be in. So if I have a car washing business going around my neighborhood washing my neighbor's cars, I just put car washing business. I had of income and I had $100 of of expenses associated with that, Uh, the cost of the car washing supplies, the cost of the new hose, and the cost of the miles driven in my vehicle to go and do that business. Now I have $700 of profit from that business. And I could have another business that's the sale of uh, fruit trees from my driveway. I could have a business that's the sale of uh, you know any product that my household creates or any service that we provide. Maybe I code uh, things, uh, do 
web programming or maybe I do jobs on Fiverr. Whatever it is, I just have the income and I just file a separate Schedule C for that. That's called a sole proprietorship. Now, when you do that, the tax that you pay is twofold. First, you pay your your employment taxes. And when you file a Schedule C as a sole proprietor, you'll pay self-employment taxes. And this represents the Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security taxes that uh, are paid for you in a job. So in the individual uh, uh, in the individual market, that means that you're going to pay a 15.3% self-employment tax uh, uh, total total of your income right off the top. So that's the total of your on your profit. You're going to pay that self-employment tax. Then in addition to that, you're going to pay your federal income tax. Uh, and all that income is going to be lumped in with your other income. And you're going to pay federal income tax at whatever rate your uh, whatever rate your tax return calculation would say that you uh, that you owe. That's the basic function, and that's the simplest way to run a business. You don't need to file anything. You don't need to do anything. But you pay that self-employment tax, which is a significant cost. Usually, when you're working in a job, your employer will pay half of it, uh, and you will pay half of it. Usually, your employer will pay 7.65%. You'll pay 7.65%. But when you're self-employed, you pay both parts, and that's primarily for Social Security. And then uh, a total of the 15.3%, 12.4% is for Social Security, and 2.9% for uh, for Medicare. That's a, the problem with with uh, with the self-employment tax. Is it's a straight tax that comes in. And you can't do any of your other federal income tax payments. So one thing that many people want to do is they want to reduce that tax. And that's where the use of an entity comes in. So keep what I just described in your mind as a sole proprietorship. And let's flip to a traditional corporation, what's called a C-corp, a traditional corporation. A traditional corporation pays tax at what's called the entity level. So Coca-Cola Corporation, when they do business all around the world, they receive income, then they have expenses, and they pay a corporate tax based upon the corporate tax rate of the government under which their jurisdiction. Uh, then what they, then in addition to that, so let's just say they're paying 30%. They pay a 30% corporate tax on their profits. Then after they pay the tax, they take the profits and they send those profits out as dividends to their stockholders. So you and I, we, we, if we own shares of Coca-Cola Corporation, we receive our nice little dividend check. That dividend check then gets added to our personal tax return and we pay an additional tax on that income. So that's why corporate income is double taxed. You hear this in the arguments and debates. There's a double taxation. The income was taxed first at the corporate level, by, paid by Coca-Cola, and then the income was taxed again at the personal level, and we pay another layer of tax. So you can do exactly the same thing in your personal business. And depending on the corporate tax rate or the personal tax rate, this may be a good idea for you to do or it may not be a good idea for you to do. When personal tax rates are low, generally you don't want to pay the double tax. But when personal tax rates are high, sometimes you'll find that corporate tax rates are lower. And so in some cases, it actually is good advice to say, let's use the traditional model of taxation and let's use and pay the tax at the entity level uh, because we'll pay less total tax by paying it at the entity level first. 
that's not usually applicable to most of the situations that we're like we're talking about. So that, but that's what those are the extremes. The first was everything is personally taxed, and you pay your self employment tax. Then at the other end was the corporate tax. So, so what's happened is over the last you know a few decades ago, um, the writers of the tax code came out with a model of what's called a flow through business entity, and we usually just refer to this in short as what's called an S corporation. In an S corporation, there is no corporate tax that's paid. All of the income from the corporation flows through directly to your tax return. If you and I were business owners in an S corporation and we each owned 50% of the company, then 50% of the income would flow through to your tax return. 50% would flow through to my tax return. S corporations have a limit on the number of tax holders. Of if, if or, Sorry, number of shareholders. It can't be more than I think uh, 100. Uh, anyway, it can't be a lot of people. So this never works for a big company like a cola corporate, like a Coca-Cola. It's only for small, basically for small businesses. The benefit of a uh, the benefit of this from a tax planning perspective is primarily in the saving of self-employment tax. And let me explain why. Let's say that we have a total income of $100,000. If we pay and, and I'm the sole owner of uh, – uh, well, you. You're the sole owner of the S corporation. You have this consultancy income. You establish yourself as an S corporation. In this context – you have $100,000 of income and you pay that to yourself as wages. Well, because you're paying that to yourself as wages, you're both the employer and the employee. So you as the employer are going to pay 7.65% of the income as wages and you as the employee are going to pay 7.65% of the income of the income in in employment taxes for a total of 15.3%. If all $100,000 on your tax return were, were characterized as wages, you would pay the same cost in an S corporation as you would in a uh, in a sole proprietorship because the 15.3% uh, of self-employment tax is identical to what you pay as an employer if you pay both the employer and the employee side. But in an S corporation, you have a choice to declare a dividend, and a dividend is not wages. The way that you do this is you're supposed to pay yourself a salary that's equivalent to the other uh, – uh, comp that's comparable to other people in your similar situation. So let's say that in your business, the comparable salary that somebody in your situation, if you were going to hire someone to replace yourself, would receive is $50,000. In that situation, you pay yourself a $50,000 salary, and then at the end of the year, your business has a profit of $50,000, and you can pay that $50,000 to yourself in the context of a dividend. Dividends, because they're profits, not wages, dividends do not – you don't have to pay uh, employment taxes on dividends. And so what you get to do is you get to save the cost of the employment taxes on those dividends because uh, because they're paid out to you um, not as wages but as profits. And so in that context, on your $50,000, you would save yourself $7,650 of tax by paying it to yourself in the form of a dividend rather than as a wage. This These – 
barriers between these two things are somewhat arbitrary in terms of do you pay yourself $100,000 of salary, $50,000 uh, $50, of salary and $50,000 of profit or $100,000 of profit. You as the business owner, you get to decide that because you're in charge. Um, but the uh, the auditors from the IRS are very – this is uh, an area that where there is a lot of abuse. And so this is one of the primary things. And so your, advice, your accountant will tell you you need to research – what is comparable pay? If you're a physician and you're saying, uh, well, I'm only going to pay myself a $20,000 salary and $300,000 of profit, that ain't going to fly. Uh, but you can do this reasonably. And as long as it's, you're reasonable with the numbers, it allows you to sell, save on your self-employment tax. So that's the theory behind why people say if you use a corporation like an S corporation, um, then you can save a little bit of money on your uh, on your taxes rather than working as it uh, working in it individually now the 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 tricky thing as i explained at the beginning is an llc can choose any one of these models so an llc can choose to be taxed as a sole proprietorship an s corporation or a c corporation and the benefit of an llc is it gives you some of the liability protection that a traditional corporation gives you but you have fewer corporate formalities that need to be observed. If you're running a corporation, you must have an annual meeting of your board of directors. You must have proper uh, business books uh, tracking uh, the number of shares of the corporation that are issued, the annual, the minutes of the annual meeting of the directors of the corporation, et cetera. You need to file a separate corporate tax return. So there, these formalities uh, can are significant with a corporation. And so that's why there's such a growth in the LLC marketplace because an LLC doesn't have such onerous corporate formalities that need to be observed. It's a much simpler uh, entity. But that's the explanation as to why people refer to an LLC and say um, uh, and say that it can be helpful. Your turn, Jonathan. No, that was really uh, that was really compelling and and pretty pretty clear cut, I thought. Okay, um, I have another question. If, if unless you want to continue talking, mm -hmm. um, so I'd owned my uh, I had a small loft in New York City for 22 years, and I sold that to move down to Florida. And when I sold it, I made a I made like six I mean it was a 600 percent increase in my in the value of my property. And I just assumed that when you when you sold a, a house, you could then roll over the profit into the new one. But uh, my accountant tell, tells me that's not the case. And, and now I have a really large tax uh, debt from the IRS. And I put, um, I put probably a couple of hundred thousand dollars in, in, over the years into, into improving it and, uh, and making it better. And I, I, ha when I go before the IRS, I want to argue that, um, or at least when I, when I file my taxes on this, I want to, to argue that I've put this money into, the, um, into upgrading the house and making it more valuable. Uh, but I don't know how that works. Do you file a tax return as a single person or as married filing jointly? Single person. Single person. Uh, so the first, they're basically you're out of luck. Uh, it's not going to work. Uh, you in the U.S. tax code, as a single person, a single taxpayer filing uh, singly, you can ignore up to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of gain from the sale of a personal residence that you have lived in. For taxpayers who are married filing jointly, you can ignore five hundred thousand dollars of gain and uh, from the sale of of a residence. Uh, so uh, that's a that's a, a tremendous 
planning opportunity if you fall into those situations. That that money, in terms of tax-free money, some of the best tax-free money that you can ever get is related to uh, is related to those gain numbers. Uh, you know, I've known people who you can you can do this if you want to have a truly uh, income tax-free life. Uh, you can uh, 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 you can. In your handy, you can buy a, a handyman special house for a hundred thousand dollars, move into it, live in it for three years, and then turn around and sell it for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. And if you're an individual single person, that two hundred and fifty thousand dollars would be truly income tax free. There's no employment taxes due. There are no income taxes due on uh, on the money. Uh, however, for for your, in your purposes, when you have a gain that exceeds that, you will. Uh, you will uh, owe tax on on that increase. So that's most people. That's the situation that most people face, which is the simplest, where they can just avoid uh, avoid the gain. In in your situation, you do need to calculate um, and substantiate your your numbers uh, carefully, and you got to calculate your tax basis. Uh, the problem is how to represent this number accurately, because most people are not going to have the records to be able to calculate it accurately. Uh, or not, because you're going to owe your tax on the the increase in property, but the difference between the sales price and the actual basis in the house. So the first most obvious point is what you paid for it. Uh, what was the actual sale price of the home? And then that basis is adjusted in uh, in tax terms. Uh, it's adjusted based upon various costs. Certain things that can reduce your basis is if you ever took any depreciation on the house, if you ever rented it out, uh, if you ever received any insurance payments. Uh, so you had a fire, you received ten thousand dollars of insurance payments. Well, that would reduce your basis. Uh, let's say you uh, paid five hundred for it, that would just drop it by ten ten thousand dollars, and you would have to owe the tax on that. Uh, or for uh, you know, there are a couple of other things. You can increase the basis if if you can substantiate them as additions or improvements. So let's say that you renovated and you made substantial changes that were additions or improvements, then that could increase your basis. You paid 500000 for it, but you uh, improved it and, and a cost of 100000 Now your basis is 600000 and you sold it for a million. That will in, increase it as well as any um, uh, money that you've paid for uh, – um, you know, a few simple, few little things, legal fees, money that you paid to uh, fix anything that was uh, a casualty loss, uh, fire, theft, etc., things like that. But general repairs do not count as a change to your basis. So what you've got to do to make your best case is go back and try to figure out how much money was actually spent on improvements, not repairs. You can never account for the money spent in repairs, but you can account for it improvements. So depending on your records, if you can go back through and you can prove, oh, look, in 2009, I spent, um, you know, I hired a contractor to do such and such an improvement and I spent uh, money at the Home Depot, but here it was for an improvement that will qualify, but just the normal repairs do not adjust your basis, and you're going to owe the tax on the income. We're talking going back to like 1992 or 1993 when I first started, um, you know, working, you know, renovating the place. And uh, did they, they are they going to demand proof of all of this all the way back to you know 25 years? Well, have you filed the return yet? The, the, have you filed your tax return after the sale of the property? 
I, well, if I, I filed, I paid $250,000 extra in tax and um, filed a return, but I have to follow up on that and file a definitive return. Meaning, are you actually, is the, has the IRS actually, uh, are you, have you, has, has this return been audited? No, it, no, it hasn't. There's, um, they're still waiting for a final return, uh, you know, for me, for me to pay, you know, pay the balance of what I owe them. Yeah. Um, so and I, I I filed estimating my my um, improvement costs at around two hundred thousand dollars. But um, so you're doing the right. Th- you're 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 certainly doing the right thing uh, in terms of estimating them. Uh, your basic line of attack is this: in in dealing with the IRS, a lot of people have this question of what should I do with the IRS? Maybe if I under report under report my gain or under report sorry under report my expenses, maybe I won't get audited, etc. Um, the way I look at it, based upon my study and experience, is you should take with vengeance every single tax credit that you uh, that you can, and you should take with vengeance uh, any tax deduction that you can. Uh, the only legal uh, the only legal authority that I'm aware of that will actually affect your freedom is if you don't report income. So the IRS will throw you in jail if you don't report income. But the actual occurrence of that seems to be very, very small. Um, anything beyond that is a matter of, of, of a fight uh, between accountants. So in terms of actually calculating things, you should sit down and make your best faith estimate of what you actually spent based upon any records and, and situation that you have. Sit down and figure it out to the very best of your ability, and then file your taxes for that. Um, statistically, you have a very low likelihood of ever being audited. Uh, the audits are way down. Uh, the IRS is overwhelmed, and, and audit rates are way, way down. And so statistically, your odds are pretty good that you're never going to be audited. And the only point in which you would actually have to prove how much you actually spent is going to be if or when you were to get audited. If you get audited and they say you owe us more money because you said that you spent $200,000 on property improvements and you actually can only substantiate with perfect receipts from 1992, you can only substantiate for us $100,000 of property uh, improvements, well, that means they charge you the tax on $100,000 plus a small penalty fee, which is basically negligible and, and not that big of a deal. So, um, you know, the IRS gives you no benefit for you keeping your money with them as hundreds of millions of people, tens, tens, perhaps hundreds of millions of people do uh, in the United States where they, they, they give the IRS an interest-free loan. Um, but at least on the flip side is that when they actually charge you penalties and interest on your money, it's not, that, it's not really that expensive. So in general, I think you should be – you should sit down, figure out what do I think I actually spent, whether you can prove it or not, and then file your tax returns on that basis, recognizing the fact that there's a risk that if I'm audited, I won't be able to prove this. This deduction will be disallowed. So what? You owe the money that you'd pay anyway, uh, and the chances of your getting audited are pretty small and getting smaller by the day. Joshua, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and your expertise. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Before we go, I just want to uh, talk expand on the, this question of repairs versus improvements with a clarification. Uh, everything in what I, the advice I just gave to Jonathan was related to his personal residence. And as you could hear when talking about the idea of an improvement, uh, as you could hear in that context, uh, 
it's, it should be obvious to you that as a personal homeowner, you want any changes or work done on your house to be characterized as an improvement rather than a repair because the cost of an improvement can be added to your basis, um, which will be calculate your gain at the time of sale and will either reduce your tax uh, – it will reduce your tax. That's exactly the opposite than what you generally want as a real estate investor. Uh, as an investor – you generally would rather have, if you had the choice, you generally would rather have uh, your the cost of, of, of some work that's being done on your property. You'd rather have that characterized as a repair rather than an improvement. And the reason here with, a, with an investment property is that the cost of any repairs on your property, that cost is immediately deductible. Whereas the cost of any improvements has to be amortized based upon the standard amortization schedule of was it, 27 and a half years for a residential rental property and uh, just uh, 40, 39 years for uh, commercial property. So if you are in a, a, a real estate investor and you're trying to do careful tax planning, you want repairs. So what's the difference between a repair and improvement? Depends. And there's here, there's not really any bright line test, as they say. There's not a guaranteed way to know whether or not something is a repair or whether it's an improvement. Rather, there are some general guidelines and some things that you can focus on that if you follow the general guidelines, it'll make, make a difference. Hold firmly in your head, your personal residence, you want improvements and you're tracking with the goal of improvements commercial or rental real estate, you want repairs from the perspective of tax planning. The first thing to do is to segregate your costs to the best degree possible. Remember, all of this is only going to come in if you are generally, if you're actually audited. But in an audit, your best strategy is comprehensive, overwhelming substantiation of every single decision you made in, in in filling out your return. And that starts with keeping a careful paper trail. And the little things count. If you are hiring somebody for a series of repairs and improvements and they're a worker for you, make sure that those bills are segregated. Make sure that the estimates are different estimates so that you can uh, properly allocate them to the proper accounting framework. If you are buying supplies to fix up your house or to fix up your uh, uh, your rental property, make sure that if you're checking out at Home Depot and you're about to spend $1,000, make sure that to the best degree possible that you are uh, uh, d making different receipts, that you're checking out in different orders. And on the back of one receipt, you write uh, materials for the repair of blah, blah, blah. On the other receipt, you write materials for the property improvement project of blah, blah, blah. Then, of course, because you're a good bookkeeper, you would take those receipts home. Those receipts would be, you know, in perhaps ideally scanned into your computer. It would be attached to your accounting software or saved in a file of everything that's related to your uh, to your house. Uh, the simple non a techie solution to that is you just simply keep a file with all of the paperwork of everything related to the cost of your house. You have a, for your personal house and for each rental house, and you need to take that little uh, heat printed receipt that you got from the home improvement store, copy it on a photocopier so that it becomes ink on paper rather than heat created ink on paper. 
And that goes in your file. That way it won't uh, fade over time. And then it gets entered into your spreadsheet. So you want to segregate your repairs from your improvements in any way possible. That's the starting point. There are other things that you can do, though, uh, which would help to substantiate your claims. Now, we're getting very (laughs) – I don't expect the majority of people to keep these things straight in their head, but if you want to be a tax nerd here, here's what you do. And of course, you document all these things. Uh, If you're trying to get a repair, then you focus on making sure that you're only um, fixing just a little bit of the problem. If there's a hole in the wall, you want to make sure that you don't take out the whole wall. You want to make sure that you just fix the hole, and that would be in your best interest in – getting something classified as a repair. On the flip side, if you want an improvement, consider taking out the whole wall. That's going to make a big difference. Uh, Repairs are going to be involved in fixing damage. So in a rental property, you want to, if there's damage to the property, you just want to fix it. However, in a personal property, you might want to go ahead and improve it. Use the idea of damage, the the faucet in the sink broke. Use that as a time to go ahead and upgrade the kitchen if you've been wanting to upgrade the kitchen. Don't just fix the damaged cabinets. Uh, of course, be careful with something like that. And uh, Another classification that has been looked at in IRS tax cases has been uh, what was the initial impetus for the change. Generally, a repair is something that's going to take place after a specific damaging event, whereas an improvement is probably something that was planned in advance. So on your rental properties, if you want repairs, just do the repairs when there's damage. And um, on your personal residence, plan the improvement in advance, schedule it for a time that uh, is appropriate to you. Uh, even the materials that you use are going to make a difference. If you're work, if you're trying to get a repair on your rental property, you want to make sure that you don't come in and swap out all of the cheap entry level stuff with fancy upgraded uh, fixtures. You want to just use similar um, similar materials, perhaps even less expensive. That way, you'll get the repair cost. And in your personal residence, if you are facing uh, the need to adjust something and change something, perhaps this would be the time to go ahead and make the upgrades and and upgrade the fixtures, uh, etc. And then um, make sure that your the amount of the extent of your work is is adjusted based upon which you're 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 trying to get to. Uh, in another thing that the IRS has looked at in tax cases for. Uh, repairs in rental properties has been, was the tenant still in the home? If the tenant was still in the home and you're just sending a tradesperson in to do some fixes, that will help you in your case of getting repairs. Uh, Good thing to do is just take pictures, take those pictures and keep those pictures filed away in your file. Anytime you do something on your house, you should take pictures, uh, the before and the after, uh, document these things in your, uh, you know, in your notes, in your records, make sure that you're keeping segregated financial records, having those receipts, things like that. It could be very much in your best interest to be careful with this along the way. Let me give you an idea of why. If you're in a situation like Jonathan was facing, let's say that you live in a house and over time, you're going to uh, spend $100,000 upgrading that house. If you had a gain of $600,000 because of that $100,000 of expenses versus a gain of $500,000, if you're at a 30% tax rate, there's a $30,000 tax bill right there. So is it worth it for you to track 
these expenses that you're making and enter, enter them in your financial record keeping system. Again, can be simple. Just keep a manila folder for the house and any money that's spent on the house uh, gets filed properly in that folder. It's very much in your best interest. The tax exclusion where you can exclude either $250,000 or $500,000 of gain from the sale of a primary residence is really, really valuable. One of the most valuable, uh, it's hard to get completely tax-free income. That's a good way to get it. You can use that tax exclusion every two years in the United States. So if you have the ability or the desire to move, change houses frequently, and if you have the ability or knowledge to figure out how to sell your houses when you move for more than you paid for them, this could be a valuable, valuable thing for you to consider. Tax advice doesn't necessarily equate to good financial advice in deciding what to do or what not to do. You'll have to look at that. But if you want to put a pool in or if you want to upgrade the kitchen, etc., it may, it's possible, that may make a difference in your ability to sell your house in the future. And it might be well worth your considering doing and it, it could make a difference. All of that stuff is local market dependent and, and you have to be careful because it's easy always to take tax advice and flip that over into spending more money than you should. After all, uh, you should buy a house because you get to deduct it, right? Well, most people that do that wind up buying more house than they probably should given their financial situation. Uh, so you've got to re- factor that in, but hopefully this tax advice points you uh, in the right direction. One of the most interesting <laughs> interesting areas. Thank you all for listening to today's show. I'd love for more more callers to uh, come on in future shows. Um, so every now and then I've, I've opened these up to people on the email list. So if you don't want to send me any money, then uh, you can sign up for that and um, you know have every now and then open them up for those. But your uh, clearest and quickest way is to come on and become a patron. RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron if you would like to support uh, and if you'd like to feature on these shows. Um, closing announcements. I don't have any can't think of anything else to say, so I'm just going to go. This show is part of the Radical Life Media Network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at RadicalLifeMedia.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.